Welcome to the Grizzly Times podcast with Louisa Wilcox, a place devoted to all things grizzly, where we interview scientists, managers, Native Americans, and others about their perspectives and experience with bears and their ecosystems. This comes at a critical time in a complex debate about grizzly bears, with the recent restoration of endangered species safeguards for the Yellowstone bear, but a new proposal to strip protections for glaciers grizzlies, and when warming temperatures and development are transforming the bear's world. We hope that you find the information and views offered here useful as you shape your own conclusions. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and the third of four episodes of my interview with Estella Leopold, the last remaining offspring of legendary conservationist writer and philosopher Aldo Leopold. Here, Estella shares stories about her career as a world-renowned paleobotanist, environmentalist, and teacher. This episode is devoted to Estella, her fascinating career as a paleobotanist that took her around the world and long commitment to protecting the environment and to mentoring students. But her father never stopped calling her baby. And we'll start with that story. With us, it was more or less a, well, what were you interested in doing today? What did you learn today, baby? He called me baby. (laughs) He called you baby throughout your... Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) Did you resist that or? No, uh, no, Uh I was just surprised. Uh-huh. Sitting in in a college class and raise your hand and, and dad would baby say baby one of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I suppose you could get that's the, all right. You and your mom, us two, Estelle is confused. Maybe that, but yeah, baby. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Uh, I found out why he. In the last year or two, I finally began to realize why he did that. Why did he call me baby my yeah. entire life right. instead of calling me Estella? Right. Because, and he never called me Estella, ever. Really? Because there was only one Estella Aww. in his mind, mm. and that was Estella Berger. Yeah. Oh. And so like a fool, when I was a kid, and I was in third or grade, and the nuns couldn't pronounce my name. Oh. I was very upset because I was named Eloisa, Estella. Eloisa. Mm-hmm. And uh, they called me Eloise and all kinds of funny things. And I said, Mom, the nuns can't pronounce my name. Could I just have your name? Oh. And Mother said, oh, sure, if you want. <laughs> you know, but that so was, that was your idea. That was my idea, and it was a very bad idea. Ah. Uh. I should be Eloisa, but anyhow. But your dad didn't. It's too bad now because it's, it's set in concrete. Right. The Leopold family had unusual pets. Estella's brother Carl was a falconer, and Estella had a fox squirrel and several crows, the topic of some hilarious stories. She refers here to a crow I had as a kid that loved to fly off with a silverware, not unlike Estella's, who seemed to prefer toothbrushes. Well, you also had this wonderful time when we first had the uh, crow Mm -hmm. uh, who was frequenting our backyard in in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, Nina and I would look out the bathroom window in the morning, and there was Dad out there in the garden in his pajamas and slippers digging worms for the crow who was sitting there going, (laughs) 
<laughs> Want to be fed. <laughs> so, so we were very lucky to have the bird, but it was kind of a, a early morning riser. Was that the crow um, that followed you to school? Yes, it, well, it, it saw me going to school during the, mm -hmm. except midsummer, mm -hmm. spring and fall, and it kept flying around to figure out where, where I was in that building, mm. and it finally found me in French class. <laughs> 10 o'clock on Tuesdays. It was so funny. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so, but the funniest part was that the, the crow, uh, when I raised this, this little crow, the boy next door was raising pigeons. Oh, boy. And the pigeons were going, oh, oh, oh. And the crow learned to do this. Really? Oh. So then when he finally found me in French class, he was marching up and down the outside of the window on the on the sill and going, oh, and all the students were looking at him. <laughs> it was so cute, uh -huh. but very disruptive. So mm -hmm. pretty soon I got a note from my French teacher saying, here's a note. I want you to take this to your homeroom teacher right now. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I went to my homeroom teacher, and I read the note on the way, and it said, it's that darn crow again. <laughs> the teacher gave me the one too. Yeah. I had I had to box him up when I came to school. So uh, uh huh. Uh huh. It was too disruptive. Right. You had you had several crows, didn't you? More than one. Uh, yeah, more than one. Uh -huh. I had one in Denver, I think, for a while. You did. Oh, it didn't last very long. But yeah. Had one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, you described somewhere that the crow liked to steal toothbrushes at your camp. Oh, that was at camp. Yeah. Oh, yes. that The first crow, Sammy. Uh-huh. But the pajama story goes with that one. Oh, okay. Um, yes. And that was incredible. And unlike your story, which I thought the crow flying off with the silver. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> difficult. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, the girls did not appreciate their uh, toothbrushes being stolen. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I wrote in that essay about we had, later at the Joy Camp we had a uh -huh. theater complex oh. where, okay. where uh, the children were all in acting out a play. Uh -huh. And it was parents' weekend. The parents were all coming and sitting on this mm -hmm. bank grass watching this operation going on. And uh, Sammy, this first crow, sitting up there on the top of a tree. I could see him looking down over with all this. Uh -huh. Here were the girls acting out the play. Yeah, right. <laughs> so he took advantage of this. He came down and swooped down and everybody went, ah! <laughs> He dive-bombed the audience. You're kidding. No yeah. kidding. Huh. Well, it seemed to, to them. Yeah, yeah. And making a no noise. He just just came over us, and everybody was terrified. Uh huh. And and, and of course it broke up the play. All right. <laughs> and so after that, I got the notice from the counselors that the, the owner, Miss Joy, wanted to see me in the uh -huh. morning in her office. <laughs> and so, I went to her fear and trembling. I went into her office, and she said, "I want you to see a copy of this telegram that I have sent to your mother." Uh oh. Estella, and it said, uh, Estella, I am sending Estella's crow 
COD today by railroad to you. Oh. Take care from Miss Joy. <laughs> oh. So we sent the crow back by railroad. No negotiation. <laughs> oh dear. It was very. Uh, well, it's very funny sad. that the, you know your your folks must have been fairly understanding to oh, they even. Were. Yeah, they were yeah. indeed. Uh huh. To let you have these animals and. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Yeah, you and uh, was it your brother who had a hawk or two? Carl oh. was a falconer. He, oh, he had he first he had a Cooper's hawk. Yeah, and I put a picture of that one in the book. Yeah, but then then he had a, a pigeon hawk, which is a real falcon. Yeah, and he was training this perfectly beautiful pigeon hawk. Uh huh. Not all these vignettes about pets are happy, as when a neighbor released a great horned owl on the shack land but they tell a lot about relationships in the family and with the natural world. During the day, the next day, the owl stooped and took the um, pigeon hawk off its perch and was killing him. Uh, this was a trained falcon. Right. And we all wept and we tried so hard to help this Same. bird, mm -hmm. but um, it was lethal. We lost the bird. Mm -hmm. And in the end, everybody wept because it was such a gorgeous little falcon. Yeah, it yeah. was so beautifully trained. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah, so at least we got rid of that owl. But uh -huh. I, well, your brother must have been. I mean, falconry was not the sport that it became. So he was he figuring out how to train these. Yes. Well, one of Dad's friends on the commission. Oh, commission. Uh huh. Conservation Commission was yeah. a falconer, uh -huh. and uh, Carl approached him and said, would you please help me, I'd like to become a falconer, which he did and they did. But I have to finish the story about the owl. Oh, yeah, yeah. This owl, that next night, was uh, outside in the woods, and it was lonely, and it was also hungry. Mm -hmm. And so it became, it came and sat on the roof of the shack. Yeah. And we were asleep in, inside, and we had just put new shingles on the roof. And uh, pretty soon the owl got, this is a great horned owl, a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. He got sleepy, and he started to skid down the roof. Pa-dum, 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 <laughs> pa-dum. And then you could hear whoosh, 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 whoosh. And he'd land up on the roof. Uh-huh. And then pretty soon. Do it again. Ta-dum, 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 ta-dum. And this went on and on, and pretty soon in the dark, I was in the upper bunk, and Dad got up and started out the door, and I jumped out of my bed and was following, what's up, Daddy? And he, Dad said, that goddamn owl, says Dad. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, he grabbed a flashlight and his penknife and walked down to the river barefoot, and I followed along. What's going to happen, Dad? Yeah. Well, he wouldn't talk to me. Mm -hmm. We got down to the river, and he reached out with his knife and cut a, a couple of willow branches. Uh huh. And began to stab the frogs. Oh. He got a couple of these, and he said, uh. "Here, take these up to that owl." So we got to the cabin, and we got a ladder, and I, and he helped me up the ladder. And uh -huh. He said, "Just put it on his feet up there. Maybe that'll make him happy." So uh -huh. I did, and he didn't. <laughs> it was like the frogs. Turns out 
Owls don't like frog. Oh, <laughs> so, huh. who would have known? Huh. So it just kept going on over oh, this very funny story. Estella here shares the story of her illustrious career, her work in Bikini Atoll, China, Colorado, and elsewhere. She goes on to tell about her work to protect the environment, starting with a fight to save the Grand Canyon River from being dammed, to her successful campaign to save the incredible fluorescent fossil beds in Colorado, and her work to keep high-level radioactive nuclear waste from being dumped near the Columbia River in Washington State. It is especially noteworthy that the battles over Grand Canyon and Fluorescent were won before the passage of the majority of our environmental laws. What blew me away here was Estella's integrative approach to conservation, which of course was in her genes. You tell the story, uh, maybe others do too, but you tell the story that when, you're when, you were very young, when you were young, your dad asked you wanted, what you wanted to be. And you uh, responded with all your siblings being scientists, your older siblings. Said, I want to be a bugologist because everything else is taken. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't. Maybe you could just describe sort of your evolution into what you became. <laughs> <laughs> Well, was taken is, is meant that I was aware at that young age that Starker was a, in wildlife ecology taking after Dad's field. Mm -hmm. Luna was going into you know, rivers and hydrology, and, and Nina was a geographer, and Carl was a botanist, and what was left, and so anyway. <laughs> but anyhow, it was, it was a fun. Um, thinking that way, and that, the answer was Dad said, Estella, uh, wonderful, I'll take you down to the bookstore and we'll buy you a copy of uh, Spring Flora of Wisconsin oh, okay. by Norman Fassett, and I'll buy you a vasculum, which for collecting plants, Yeah. and let's see what you can do with that, says Dad, uh -huh. and he did, uh -huh. and so and I went into in school, I learned that botany was my love because I love plants. Right. And I stuck with it. Uh -huh. So that was fun. Yeah. And your interest in pollen, how did that come about? Well, I, by actually chance, I ended up at Yale Graduate School. Uh huh. And it was an accident because I was lined up to go to uh, UCLA. A friend of Luna's came by the house and uh, had a dinner with us, and um, he said, what are your plans, Estella? And I said, I'm going to UCLA for graduate school. And he said, oh, no. <laughs> you want to go to UCLA to, to study botany? Yes, and he said, well, don't do that. My wife took her PhD at UCLA, and it took her 10 years to get the degree and they had loaded her up with all kinds of chores that other people didn't want to do. And oh. they didn't think much of women down there at that time. Uh -huh. So I said, oh, well, what am I going to do? It's already summertime, and I'm lined up to go in the fall. And he said, well, just apply to Yale. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, but it's already summertime. And he said, oh, just write to Paul Sears. Uh -huh. he'll, he'll let you in. <laughs> wow. So... I wrote a letter to Paul Sears and uh -huh. said I'd like to enter graduate school and study under him. And he said, oh, come along. And he found some money for, I, 
for my TA ship. Oh, great. And when I got there, then what was I going to do? Mm -hmm. Paul said, Dr. Sears said, and I said, well, I'd like to do something in the mountains of Wyoming or something. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what. Studying plant ecology, anyway, it wasn't very clear, my answer, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, he said, why don't you get interested in palynology, pollen work? Mm -hmm. Uh, this is something uh, I've enjoyed very much. I said, yes, I'm, I'm very aware of your excellent work and mm -hmm. pollen work, mm -hmm. but um, I'm not sure we can solve some of the major problems with pollen work, but uh, he said, you can't? He said, are you uh, afraid of a challenge? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, you know. <laughs> and that was a threat, so I, right. I thought about it again, uh -huh. and the more I worked on it, then I worked with Luna's uh, samples from the Moorcroft Terrace in oh, Wyoming, okay. and, yeah. and found that it was a lots of fun dealing with pollen in the post-glacial river terraces of Wyoming. Right. And right. so I uh, decided to stick with it. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it was, it's been a very fulfilling field because it, it permits you to, to work with the past, and climate systems and forest evolution and yeah. lots of fascinating problems connected yeah. to that. Absolutely. And you did work, so you've done work, you did work in Connecticut, right? Didn't yes, you do that's post-glacial in uh -huh. Connecticut. And then your work took you around the world eventually. Well, uh, when it, I, I was yeah. fortunate to land a job with the USGS uh -huh. Because uh, Preston E. Cloud Jr. had opened up an office in the paleontology branch for a pollen person oh, my. and a tree ring person and so forth. So anyway, I applied and I got the pollen position, which was great because yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And so that was a, a big step forward. And they get, that gave you all kinds of freedom at that time. The USGS was well-funded, right. a lot of excellent, broad scientists in it, mm -hmm. and uh, I was I just was very fortunate to work there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, they've certainly suffered a lot of budget cuts lately. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it, that, that it has, it has uh, and there's been a lot of changes in administrators, too, which made a difference. Right, right. But, but it seemed it like it was... It seemed like it was a great base to leap into problems around the country and indeed around well, the world. Well, there were great opportunities for mm -hmm. me because Preston Cloud told his geological survey people that here's this new person, this, she's working in pollen work and maybe she can help you date your rocks for you and uh, maybe she can tell you something about the past climates or something. And so I began to get all these samples coming in and I would try and figure out what it all meant and what. Mm -hmm. But you can't do any of that without knowing the basic age of the, of the rocks. Right. So be, just before isotopes we were working with sediments that were dated by vertebrates. The, the, the evolution oh, of yeah. the horse or the dog uh -huh. or whatever was. Uh -huh critical information and it could tell you about what period in the uh, last uh, 60 million years right. the rocks might be. Yeah. 
So with that information, then uh, it became isotopes, and we began to get isotopic dates. Uh huh. So we had ways of checking. So if you could get the pollen figured out, then you could determine the type of forest, and if you knew the age, you could start putting a, a picture together yeah. as a chronological sequence. Yeah. It was lots of fun. Populating with the animals and you know, just everything that was yeah. there. That is. And working with the survey, we were right there with the uh, uh, vertebrate paleontologists. Oh, yeah. The people that were working on shells. Right. The people that were working in the Pacific on uh, uh, one of these guys on the Bikini Atoll. Aha. Uh -huh. And he came to me and said, Estella, you've got to do pollen at the Bikini Atoll core. And I said, I do? He said, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Why? He said, well, because under Bikini Atoll, about a thousand foot down, the core hit uh, basalt. Uh -huh. And that was a mountaintop. Right. And so we already know from that that the Pacific plate was sinking. Right. And through all this time, which was right. about 15 million years. Uh-huh. And uh, so we need you to look at the core and tell us what the vegetation was in Micronesia, that is, yeah. bikini at that time. And I said, but Dr. Ladd, I don't know anything about the tropical vegetation of Micronesia. Uh-huh. He said, oh, that's all right. You go to the National Museum and spend the summer there, and uh, you can learn all about the present vegetation of Micronesia. Wow. So I did. I spent the whole summer there <laughs> at USGS expense. Yeah. Working with herbarium and the herbarium, the botanists who knew all this, you know, and had it. Uh -huh. Just, in fact, published a very nice long book on the plants of Micronesia. So uh -huh. I went through and got in the herbarium and got samples of the pollen. Wow. From these sheets right. going back to through the important families, the tropical families that yeah. I knew I should look for. Right. So then when we got the fossil stuff, we, we, we began to look at this and we found, oh, here comes all these tropical plants and you put them all together and it, it, it looked like a, a, a intertidal swamp of... Uh, uh, mangroves, really, and growing in uh, fifteen million years ago, huh. at a depth of a thousand feet below the present sea, oh sea level. Yeah, obviously the whole thing was yeah. had been sinking. Right, right, right. So uh, that was the basis of, of our work. And wow, it was just the U.S. Geological Survey was this marvelous source of right, uh, marvelous people who knew. The history of the areas and uh, who had, and the sources of sediments that were so special to to determine their age and their content. There yeah, a lot of good conclusions could come from that combination. Yeah, absolutely. And then at some point, you were part of uh, a group that went to China after yes. the thaw, the Nixon thaw, I yes. guess, and. Uh, and work with a paleobotanist there for ostensibly we were supposed to go and we we're going to work with a Peking man, oh, Beijing, yeah, yeah, man, and uh, that was an excuse excuse for this expedition. And there were ten of us, and I, mm. I kept telling them, "You don't need me. I work on this stuff here in the Rocky Mountains." Right, right. 
And they said, oh, yes, you need to come along. <laughs> so anyway, I got to go to China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became such an admirer of their science. They have just done marvelous developments in, huh. in China. And their, and their pollenologists, people working with pollen, yeah. have uh, just produced all kinds of wonderful literature in the huh. scientific papers on the history of, of, uh, of Chinese vegetation. Right. So there's much to learn. And I was so fortunate. I was very pleased to, to know these good scientists. Yeah. So after that, I began to get some students coming over from China to work in my lab. Oh, nice. Which is fun. I still have one. He's there now. Um, he, he's a, a, how would you describe uh, He's he's a, he's probably one of the best pollen experts uh, of China. He's wow, just really marvelous. Huh? And you didn't know him before. I mean, you didn't no, know any he, of these he guys. He was a young man. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. But he he studied there and he uh -huh. he came to my lab and we published together. He's lots of fun. Right. So did you see? Did you travel around the countryside? Did you see? Much? Yes, we had a couple of weeks, and uh, uh -huh. we we visited all kinds of places. But thanks to Gengwu Liu, his name is, uh -huh. and his wife, we were uh, we went by train all over China, oh, yeah. visiting different sites. And uh -huh. Had a wonderful tour, in fact, of the river, uh -huh. the uh, Yangtze River. Yeah. We got into one of these these boats looking at the dam site, which is being under construction. Oh, right. So impressive huh. and so horrible. Uh -huh. And we were having dinners with some of the uh, ge geologists there uh -huh. in China, and we asked my uh, friend and I, and, and Geng Wu was very quiet, but uh -huh. we'd say, why are you building this dam? <laughs> You're going to be sorry. It's going to interfere with this wonderful river right. traffic that right. you have today. Mm -hmm. And anyhow, the end was that um, the engineers said, oh, we have to build it because we need the hydro energy. We have got to get out of this habit of burning coal to yeah. get electrical energy. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way we can do it. So. Mm -hmm. So we entered these boats, Gengwu and his wife and, and my friend, hmm. my, and I took one of my uh, Nina's grandchildren with oh, me great. on this trip. Mm -hmm. And 70 meters above the, the surface of the river, we could see uh, archaeological stations which were going to get flooded oh. by this dam. And it oh. was really a shame. Oh. So we went all the way into the headwaters. It was wow. very exciting. That is exciting. Oh yeah, it was a very exciting trip. And now oh. all that's flooded. Yeah. If you did it again today, you'd be riding the top of the river. Mm -hmm. And they evacuated all these beautiful little villages that were all along the edges of these canyons. So, oh, so sad. Mm -hmm. But that's what they wanted to do. So. Right. The Faustian bargain. Of, of energy, yeah. there there is no free lunch in terms yeah. of impacts, uh, right. whether it's coal or or hydro development. But uh, yeah, so you you were you got very involved in conservation for a, a long time and and still are. 
Uh, and I wanted to ask you, so I was thinking about the damming of, uh, well, eventually of Glen Canyon and your, your efforts there, but, but before that, you were involved in a fight for these amazing fossil beds uh, that had um, shales with just an incredible number of species. And so the fluorescent. The, the fluorescent, yes. yes. Well, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what that experience was like. Well, before, before that effort, um, one time Luna came back to Madison to visit Mother, mm -hmm. and we were sitting around the lunch table, and uh, he said, Oh, I've just been so discouraged because um, President Kennedy had a gathering of uh, people, including the Secretary of Interior and the Bureau of Rec, and uh -huh. we were all sitting around a, a table, and they were talking about building a dam in the Grand Canyon, and he said, God damn, we can't build a canyon in the Grand Canyon. Right. And he said, but they're, they're talking about doing it. They're writing a bill to see if they can get the money. And so anyway, after that, um, I went, I returned to Denver mm -hmm. and talked to my friends and I got this itch to do something about this. <laughs> so we began, and we had this local group called the Colorado Open Space Council, a statewide oh, conservation yeah. group. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there to talk about, uh, let's see what we can do to, if we can get the public excited about this saving Grand Canyon. And so we had bumper stickers printed, save Grand Canyon, uh -huh. and uh, we got them all over the place. Yeah, uh -huh, great. And, well, that was kind of fun. And then yeah. we uh, began to use radio and the press. Uh -huh. The press was very helpful to us. Right. And we used our, even television, mm -hmm. and they would come and interview us. And field trips, and we'd take people from Mountain Club or CR Club or whoever, mm -hmm. And the press mm -hmm. with us mm -hmm. to the field, and well, in this case, um, after the Grand Canyon fight, we began to try and save the fluorescent uh -huh. fossil beds, which were uh -huh. particularly important yeah. fossils in the uh, Colorado area, right? And really needed to be saved because there was a threat from the building uh, a summer homes um, industry to to park buildings on top of these these beautiful fossil beds yeah. and we started up a, a terrific fight for fluorescent. Eventually there were bills that were uh, designed by local congressmen and by the senator from Colorado uh -huh. who we escorted to the field and took him with a hand lens to the beds and showed him these fossils. You just pick up the rocks and right. there these big leaves and flowers and whatnot. Right. He was so impressed that he went home and wrote a bill about it for the oh, Senate. Wow, nice. And he got it through the Senate rather uh -huh. quickly. Uh -huh. He was very enthusiastic. Yeah. So now then we had to fight hard to get it through the House. Yeah. And that was very difficult right. indeed. Yes. But we finally, man, in the end, but. Uh, Anyhow, yeah. So, the bills finally got through, but it was a six-year fight. There were a, a number of us in Colorado working hard on it, mm -hmm. especially uh, Betty Willard, who became very important in the was it Nixon administration. Anyway, oh. she she became on the council for um, 
environmental, environmental quality. management, environmental quality. Yeah, would yeah. have been right after that, that national council, environmental. She, she was appointed to that. Wow. So uh -huh. she was she was great. Maybe you could well, talk a little bit about what what you learned that might be applicable to. Well, I think the most important thing was the importance to use the press. They can help us a lot, mm -hmm. but they have to be explained to, they have to visit the site, they have to understand it, mm -hmm. and then they've got the expression that they can, they can help us restate the problems to the public. Mm -hmm. And the radio, I mean, the, the press is just like the, the fights that some of these young people have to protect their special places and mm -hmm. nature, uh, they, they ought to realize that they can get a lot of help from the local uh, media. Mm -hmm. And should, yeah. yeah, because that's that's very productive. But you can't just be anybody calling the press and say, "Hey, I've got an issue." I mean, it, it sounds like in your case, you had people with authority, intellectual prowess like yourself. Well, and at, at the time, I wasn't anybody, <laughs> but uh -huh. we we worked together. So it's the yeah. coordination of of a community effort. Yeah. That can get attention from uh, to the Congress and uh, to uh, decision makers. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a lot of experience. Well, no, yourself. I, but but just reading your work, it seems like we arrived at the same, <laughs> some similar conclusions. You know, with the media, uh, certainly you had help from uh, an attorney with the Environmental Defense Fund, and you know just the working of. The lobbying of politicians in D.C. Well, and on the, the Florissant fight, the first thing that we we talked about was Betty Willard and mm -hmm. I. She's the one that ended up in the, the CEQ. Right. We needed to get to court. Now, how are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, "Well, you know, Science Magazine had this article about a, a man named Yanacone who uh, decided that." Uh, uh, Sue the Bastards was his, uh, was his <laughs> moniker. Sue the Bastards, that's the kind of guy. So I finally got on the phone and I found how to reach Yannickoon. Uh -huh. Got him on the phone and said, would you please come out here? We'll, we'll help you, but we uh -huh. need you to uh, help us get into court. And you have to, he said, well, I have to come and visit the place first. So, so he came to visit and he flew out, or was it train? I can't even remember anymore. He brought his wife and his son, mm -hmm. and they spent the weekend out there. And they went to, we took them down there, and they dug fossils and whatnot. And he said, the first thing is I need a lawyer to help help me, a lawyer, local lawyer. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing Betty and I thought of was our favorite, Dick Lamb, right. who became governor eventually. But yeah. anyhow, he was a, a good member of the community conservation groups. Uh -huh. I don't remember which club, but conservation right. for right. sure. And so Dick Lamb got involved and uh, pretty soon we were in court and uh, stopping these developers who were gonna, and we already knew that there was, the, the Department of Interior was interested in building a park there for mm -hmm. a national monument. Right. And that's that was one reason why the developers were interested in they had a sure place to sell summer homes because it would soon be a national park or something. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a terrible mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. 
But anyhow, the, and Yannikon, he was absolutely marvelous. Hmm. So Yannikon took us aside after we had visited the, the, the site and shown yeah. him the fossils and he was very entranced. He, he's no mean scientist, by the way. He had very broad uh, background in okay. geology. I, I, we were always impressed. By That's helpful. Listening to that guy uh, yeah. when he's on the stand. It was rather quickly we were uh, we were um, in court and presenting the the evidence and the case to a judge and mm -hmm. Yannickone and, and Dick Lamb standing by and hoping that we could do well. Well, eventually. Um, we finally got a, a reasonably good judgment uh, from the court, mm -hmm. and um, but it was a temporary stay of the bulldozers. Don't right. let the bulldozers roll onto the area right. for 30 days. Well, oh. 30 days later we had to be back in court to right. make sure that it didn't happen then. Yeah. So we kept you know, approaching these uh, repeat deadlines and eventually um, got the doggone public turned on thanks to the press and all that. Well, mm -hmm. you know how it goes. We finally yeah. made it. So the, the bill went through and uh, President Nixon signed the bill and we, Great. Were, we were very happy. Congratulations. Yeah, remarkably, President Nixon did a lot of good stuff for the environment. The he clean, was amazingly uh, good. Yeah. The Clean Water Act happened yeah. under his administration. The Endangered Species Act the he signed. The Endangered Species Act. I mean, he was quite, yes. he was on a roll. Yes, and, and, and he was aware that there was a lot of public support for some of these ideas. Absolutely. So thank heavens. One of the issues that we were talking about in terms of good science yeah. related to the proposal to bury uh, high-level radioactive oh, waste I in, want to ask you in about deep that. repositories in, in the northwestern states somewhere, mm -hmm. Oregon, Washington, Idaho. And uh, in that respect, I, I served on a, a committee, which are uh, just a, a citizens committee that was asked to listen in on what the big guys were saying mm -hmm. in, in the government. And what the contractor had said about the uh, deep uh, repository in Washington was, uh, oh, it'll be all right. They, uh, mm -hmm. they have uh, assurance that the, if in case the encasements for the high-level radioactive waste broke, uh, the uh, liquids would have very slow progress into the environment and uh, they wouldn't go very far because they know that they only go such and such a rate for for, for a year or something. Mm -hmm. And I, knowing the U.S. Geological Survey, right. called on a USGS hydrologist uh -huh. to come up and to talk to us on the Citizens Committee. Right. And we asked him some questions and he said, well, you know, uh, I don't think that's very realistic because if you, um, I'm gonna tell you. The, he said we found out in our studies of river systems in the, the three states that the waters enter the system in the headwaters, and they travel underground as aquifers un, to, under the river, and then they come up into the river. 
Oh, right. And so we said, hey, look, everybody, this is a system you don't want to interrupt, and you don't want to put nuclear high-level waste at that uh, in precarious level under the river. Right. Because it'll get everywhere, including to the food chain and so on. Yeah. Now, Christine Gregoire, at that point, was our Secretary of State, or whatever it is, in the state of Washington, yeah. before she became governor. Right. Just before she got to be okay. governor. Yeah. And she arranged a, 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 a gathering of, of opinions between three states and administrators, and they all decided, no, they didn't want to have, let the contractors build the deep level repositories. Mm -hmm. So we owed it to Christine. But from, from this little committee, it went to the administrators and on up, and she finally got the word out. Helped us out. That's a great story of uh, you know science prevailing and having an ally in the political world. Yeah, and the helped. importance of this guy in the U.S. Geological yes, Survey, absolutely. who had done all this river work and, yes. and knew what he was talking yes. about. Yes, yes, absolutely. This interview continues in episode four. 